Before we get into today's episode, a quick warning. This episode contains extensive discussion of abuse, coercion, control, alcoholism and drug abuse that might be distressing for some listeners. It was really important to have like a list of red flags for polyamorous relationships or to have a basic understanding of what what abuse is that is inclusive for polyamory. Mm. You know, these basic things that we can have a common language in our you know, subculture that we can use to help people uh, get out of it or not get into abusive situations. Hello, love. <laughs> I don't know why you're doing that. Neither do I. Not very like you, is it? No. All right, well. But, you know, welcome. Welcome, everybody. Uh, if you've probably seen, we've got quite a heavy sort of topic today. So just, yes. you would have heard the trigger warning at the beginning as well. There's heaps of resources in the episode description that you'll be able to access that we recommend you uh, you do. At any time during the episode, afterwards, it's always going to be there. So, yeah, some really helpful uh, resources that will probably make a bit more sense once you've listened to the episode. Indeed, yeah. Before we, uh, you know, do that, the episode, the proper episode, yeah, as opposed to the fake one that we're doing now. <laughs> um, let's tell all our lovely viewers about another podcast. Our viewers, viewers, listeners. Sorry, guys. All over the place. Um, about another podcast that we were guests on called Coming Out Pod. Um, we were very fortunate enough to be asked on to to go on. Well, we did pitch ourselves, but then they were happy for us to come on. Yeah, potato, potato. Yeah. yeah. Um, with Lauren. Yeah, so it's called The Coming Out Pod. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's yeah. just about uh, people's different different people's coming out experiences, and we got to talk about our coming out experiences about uh, not just our uh, sexuality, but um, um, also our relationship orientation, which yeah. was nice. Yeah, it was like kind of it's it's almost like a sort of triple whammy situation because it's like you coming out to me, me coming out as bisexual, and then us like coming out as a non-monogamous couple and I mean anyone who's queer will know that when you're you are queer or you're in a non-monogamous relationship you this idea of coming out isn't something that you do once then you're like okay great never have to do that again it's it's obviously like a lifelong experience and something that we you know every queer person deals with every single day and and yeah it's just a really nice it was a really cathartic experience i feel like for us yeah. and it was also just like a nice honest kind of conversation so we had a really lovely time chatting to lauren yeah so make sure you check that out guys i'll put a link in the yeah. the description as well speaking of coming out yeah. i have a little story that i want to share okay so go i have we've mentioned on the show before that we're not really out at work like in terms of being non-monogamous. Well, you're not out at work, just to clarify. Oh, okay. You are. I think I knew that. I mean, how, like, 
I mean, this is, I don't want to overcomplicate the beginning of the story before you can get into it, <laughs> but like you can be out to some people at work and not necessarily everyone at work. And you can also, yeah. uh, or you can just be, yeah. So it's not quite that uh, black and white. Yeah. But yeah, I know uh, you, you weren't out to anyone at work, whereas no. I have been out with various people and sometimes not, depending on where I'm working, I guess. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it is very circumstantial. Like at my last job, I was out, but I also like went through the opening up experience with you while I was at that job. And it was like a very queer workspace, workplace, sorry. So it was easy for, it, it didn't feel like it was something that was sort of, you know, I wasn't really too worried about telling people. Um, but then moving to a new workplace, I was just a bit like, oh, I don't know, you want to make sure that you're safe. Like first and foremost, I just want to do my job, come to work as my mostly full self and then go home and, and continue to do the rest of my life. So, you know, it's not something that I've like actively brought up at work before. Everyone knows I'm bisexual. But again, like when you're in a young workplace, that often really isn't that much of a concern, I find, to, to younger people. Yeah, a lot of younger people are just like, who isn't? Which is pretty great. Yeah. When you get that. But But yeah, like I was having a after work drink with two of my colleagues and we were sort of chatting about all sorts of stuff, you know, as you do, and, and a question came up about what do you think is gonna be the like hot button issue that we as older people might struggle with? Which is something quite interesting to think about because there's issues that older generations struggle with now and it's like, huh, what could my version of that be? I can only imagine what someone may have said. And then some, one of the people in the group suggested that maybe non-monogamy could be that topic. Mm. And I felt like the sort of like something had dropped out of my stomach, you know, because I'd sort of felt like if it comes up organically, I might just like mention it, you know. But of course, like, <laughs> it's not. I don't know, in a workplace, not everyone's been like, hmm, let's talk about non-monogamy, you know? And so I was very, I was just, when, when that came up, I thought, oh my goodness. I mean, sometimes I am actively looking for uh, places in which I, I can talk about it because I want to talk about myself. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was just really sort of surprised that that came up. And I was like, oh, okay, this is the sort of situation that I thought to myself I might mention it and this discussion was kind of around well how would you feel about four-way marriages and that might be hard for us to sort of get my our heads around and I was like oh, well nope <laughs> I, I was just, like just nope. okay cool not hard and but also for me what really struck me as well was that four-way marriages like <laughs> the default that it's just like this it's like obviously we support plural marriage but where it's like an equal opportunity for everybody to be plurally married yeah. and it's consensual etc but it was just funny that that was sort of the, the thing, thing that yeah. came out and yeah. i also thought there was a part of me where this discussion and most of the like there was two people that i was talking to and they kind of were talking about, oh, well, yeah, like I might not understand it, but I would also just support it because like if people want to do that, that should be fine. So exactly. it, was a, it also made me feel quite safe because the discussion yeah. was yeah. really supportive. And so they were saying, oh, yeah, you know, 
about that and and I sort of just said oh well you know transitioning to a non-monogamous relationship is something I've actually been through and they were like okay and I said with Richard my current partner and they were both like I think quite surprised and I sort of just explained what we sort of talked about in episode one about our experience about coming out and I said yeah it was really challenging but I like I'm glad we did it and one of them was said oh, so is that like a permanent thing? And I said, yes, like this is how our relationship will be. And then the other one was like, oh, does it make it, does it, did it feel like it was good? Like, is it, was it worth it? And I said, yeah, like our relationship feels strong and something I say all the time, this is the most authentic expression of our love. And it just, everything fell into place after we made this decision. And they were both a bit... I mean, I did have to laugh because they both looked a bit shocked that maybe they'd said something that might offend me because they didn't know I was non-monogamous when they mm. like brought it up, but they hadn't said anything. It was more just, I did feel like a side of a responsibility to sort of speak up and say something like, no, that there's more to non-monogamy than the, the sort of stereotypes. And it's, you know, we're not, not a lot, people don't speak about it enough. The discourse is quite thin on this topic and I wanted to use that opportunity to say that. But I also felt really nervous because I was exposing a part of myself. Yeah. And then that was it. Then they, we kind of just moved on to the conversation. Like they haven't been any different to me at work. They've been really nice and normal, which has been great. And But I did come home and I was like a bit, a bit worried. I was like, did I do the right thing? You know, should I have mentioned it? Because I think there is an element sometimes when there's putting yourself a part of you out of there that uh, putting a part of you out there that is quite, it shouldn't be, but it feels like it can be controversial. I don't know how you feel. I, I just, I was really nervous about it and it went really well. And I feel like there was, I was, I was a bit worried when it all happened because, oh my goodness, have I done the right thing? But there was also a palpable sense of relief that some people that I work with know this thing about me and that I can feel like I can show up as my full self and not be worried about accidentally slipping up if someone says, what are you doing tonight? And I say, I've got a date. Or have you been on this dating app? Oh, yeah, I was on that last week. And... I have feel like I had to monitor myself a bit with those sorts of parts of my life because, you know, people do talk about dating on this team and who they're dating and, and romantic relationships and past dating experiences. And up until now, I feel I felt like I had to pretend that the stories I were telling predated you. And now with at least a small group of the team, I'm not going to have to do that. And And as time goes on, maybe I'll be able to sort of open up to the rest of them. And yeah, it was just like a really nerve wracking experience. And sometimes it's hard to know what the line is in a professional space as well. So yeah, it's just one of those coming out experiences. And in some contexts, it just doesn't get easier. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, go you. <laughs> High five Thanks. for that. Boom. <laughs> Hopefully that comes across on the mic. Uh, otherwise, it's just me saying boom. Yeah, I mean, this is it's it's weird. I, I think because I've uh, first of all, I'm a dude. I have a penis, <laughs> and people will certainly presume that I have a penis. 
And sometimes that can be annoying, but sometimes it can afford me certain privileges, mm. is, is what I'm saying. Mm. So, it's it, two things can be true at once there, basically. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm a dude, but I'm not. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway. And you know what? Rich gets into it on the coming out pod episode. So, I do. I listen do. to that. I do do, yeah. I do, 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 do that. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I do... When I come out in in quotations mm-hmm. um whether it be relationship style or sexuality or gender stuff it's the way that people react to me based on their own i guess their own prejudices mm-hmm. is different to the way they react to you um they probably don't question me quite as much i mean i certainly haven't there's a lot of questions that you've told me that you've been asked after talking about our relationship non-monogamous relationship that i don't have experiences of being asked so i think i don't know whether it's that is an aspect of it and also just the fact that i have been coming out for longer than you probably so i've gotten pretty used to it that i just kind of I, I kind of roll the di- dice every time and just go for it, really. if Like, I'm probably going to feel safer because of the way I look, mm-hmm. um, uh, as for one. But, uh, but also because I've probably had every reaction you can have, apart from ex- an extremely violent one. I've never had an extremely violent one. And to be honest, in this country, very privileged to say that I probably won't experience that. But I did literally just in this past week come out as being in a polyamorous relationship and the response was surprisingly very indifferent but in like a positive way in like, a, okay, cool. I didn't care, you know. But yeah, ultimately like you're your experiences have generally seemed to have to, to to have been more like historically have been a little bit more difficult with that and i think that's why maybe you were a, one of the reasons why you were a little bit slower to maybe tell colleagues but of course you know their response was great right their response was really comforting and yeah and, and i that's, that that's that can only be a good thing yeah and i i said to them it's this is difficult for me to talk about in a work context because polyamory isn't a protected characteristic under UK law and I was a little bit worried that this could open me up to job loss or discrimination where I'm less concerned about bisexuality because it is a protected characteristic so I feel safer being able to talk about that and yeah, I mean, also, I just think I feel safer because most people in our generation are pretty cool with the gay thing. So I know that's a blanket statement, but on the whole, no one really cares that I'm bi. I Everyone mean, seems to know that. You're, and you're, it's, it, it's, you, it's safe to say that even if someone did act with hostility about the, the sexuality stuff in this country within our generation, that you you would feel empowered enough and know that people around you would rally behind you 
a hell of a lot more than people would rally behind them. But no one would probably rally behind them. Yeah. <laughs> so. and, but also it's just, it would just be very much a, well, you're wrong. And it's not as though I think that people who discriminate against non-monogamy are not wrong. I do think that they're wrong. But when you grow up in a society that's so monogonormative, it's so easy just to think, oh, I am doing something weird and different. And I feel nervous telling you. But it's just, um, yeah. I think a good idea would be to ask listeners to maybe get in touch with us with some of their coming out stories, Mm. like specifically around non-monogamy. I think it'd be really cool to hear some of your stories and only if you're comfortable with them potentially being shared. We don't necessarily have to name you or anything like that. We can keep it completely anonymous, but I think it might be a really great sort of, uh, you can give, you can, you you can end your stories with your advice on how you would deal with that differently or how someone who's never come out maybe should approach or could approach their own coming out. Uh, I think that would be really great. So please do get in touch if you are willing and have a particularly good one. Or maybe you have a funny one, you know, just to kind of <laughs> just to kind of lighten things up a little bit. Mm. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Well, we're going to take a break now and then we'll be back with Claire. Uh, we're talking about abuse today, so just keep that in mind. Yes, uh, this is a really heavy but really useful episode and there's so many fantastic resources that she talks about and we're just so lucky to bring this to you today so I'm really I'm really excited about being able to produce something that you know I think has a really important place in the non-monogamy conversation and and bring that to our listeners so yeah absolutely right we're going to take our 15 second break or however long this little uh musical interlude musical interlude lasts which is probably less than 15 seconds but it's worth it we need it (laughs) before delving deep okay all right see See you later see you in a few seconds Okay, everyone, this time we are joined by the founder of non-monogamy resource, Polly Pages. She's a writer, researcher, podcaster, and humanitarian aid consultant. We're so appreciative of her time today to help us tackle the topic of abuse. Please welcome Claire Travers. Hello. Hi. Oh, my God, it's so nice to be on. I'm so excited. How are you today? Really good. Yeah, I'm very excited for the conversation. Um, (laughs) We're really yeah. excited to have you as yeah. well. So yeah, let's just get straight into it. Yeah. We've got like, quite a quite a, um, a an important and a yes. deep topic to discuss today. Um, we'd love for you just to start with sort of giving us an overview of how Poly Pages came to be. It's such an important and valuable resource for non monogamous folks. So we'd just love a little bit of background to get us started. Yeah. So Poly Pages is a, an academic non monogamous podcast and platform. Um, about the intersection between literature and non-monogamy. And it actually started as a podcast. Uh, The podcast is now on hiatus due to some resource constraints um, while I'm doing my PhD, but it is still there. It's in the annals of history. (laughs) Um, This actually came about because my partner at the time wanted to read some of the books around non-monogamy. I I had been doing it for a very long time. 
um, but it was his first relationship. And so we started a podcast to read the ethical slut chapter by chapter. And then it kind of went on from there and became a larger platform. And uh, I'm a, an academic researcher as well as a humanitarian aid consultant. So as I moved into uh, this space, I was very aware that there was a niche of academic resources that were really relevant and really interesting, but they were kind of small enough that you could learn everything about it, which is very uh, addicting for an academic. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I did. Um, Now Polypages operates as as that platform. Uh, We have our website, polypages.org, and our TikTok and our Instagram. We offer sort of at the moment three primary resources, if you like. First of all, we consult with labs that are doing academic research about non-monogamy to help sort of sensitize them to things like microaggressions, couples privilege in their calls so that we can widen the access of participants who are engaging in academia so that it's uh, a little bit more inclusive and a little bit more accessible for people who are doing non-monogamy and who might be interested in those calls. The second is that we provide uh, reading lists and uh, lots of literature-based stuff. We ran a book club for uh, Thorn Apple Press for the last year. That's unfortunately ended now. It was a time-limited offering, um, but a lot of those resources are still up there. And we also do ad hoc uh, online events about sort of critical issues to do with polyamory, things like decoupling and breakups. And um, the third major offering that we kind of do is we do uh, the flagship content around abuse in polyamory, uh, which is obviously a very difficult topic, but it's an incredibly under-researched topic. And a lot of the resources are very mononormative. They're very, I mean, they're very heteronormative as well. Like they're they're very uh, one size fits all. And that's obviously not how abuse presents. So we are working to widen the resources that are already available and to support ongoing research into abuse and polyamory and also some quick key facts and and key red flags to look out for for people that are concerned. And I mean, they are, it's, as you said, they're flagship resources and they're under, there's not many of them. And, you know, in many ways, they're they're the first sort of ones that are researched and out there for people who are non-monogamous. How did you start doing that? How did you start to pull these resources together when there wasn't a whole lot to to go off in terms of what was already out there? Yeah. So my personal motivation for this was experience with people who have been in abusive situations and abusive situations myself. So I, it definitely needed that need like for myself personally. Um, but it wasn't just me. There were other people that were in the creative space that noticed there was a potentially oversimplistic, overly positive Uh, presentation of polyamory um, which is you know it's not an uncomplicated relationship no relationships are um, but the resources that are already existing are so tailored for mononormativity that they are more likely to see the polyamory as a as a tool of the abuse or a symptom of the abuse as opposed to something that's a valid relationship structure or relationship orientation um, that can also become abusive. So there was definitely this, my personal need, the community need. And thirdly, there were some resources that were available uh, that were had just been updated to include things like queer terminology, trans terminology, that moved away from a very heterosexual lens, but hadn't gone all the way into talking about non-monogamy. And I think that so there were already those resources available. It felt like a very natural match to, 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 to do the work of taking them and applying them for for non-monogamy. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it's something that we talk about a lot as well, though, about sort of this lack of specific resources around non-monogamy, um, in, you know, in this space. Uh, particularly, many of us have to do what's co- called context switching, um, often consuming, as you said, resources geared more towards monogamy and then kind of translating them to, to our experiences rather than having stuff that's kind of, you know, immediately geared towards us, which can be frustrating, to say the least. But how can, how, how can having to context switch when accessing those resources about abuse be limiting or discouraging or isolating even? I mean, it can be all those things. It can also just be impossible, right? You're yeah, going yeah, through yeah, a true, very, true. <laughs> you're going through a very difficult emotional time, and your your spoons are right at the the lowest point. You mm-hmm. don't have a lot of extra extra time, space, or energy to go out and find resources for yourself. Then doing the extra steps of having to context switch when you're already so stressed and so so burnt out. I mean, it can just be completely off-putting for people, leaving them in a situation where they are wondering if this is okay or not. There's not maybe enough cultural literacy about polyamory to be able to think, oh, actually, this isn't this isn't working, or this isn't actually this isn't quote unquote normal. Um, this is problematic. And maybe, and I think most people actually probably get a lot of their information about polyamory not from literature, not from academia, but from the community they see on TikTok or social media where you're only going to get, you know, these very compressed, very shallow understandings of what polyamory can be. And as I said, they're very positive. They're very Mm -hmm. sometimes oversimplistic. Um, So it can be incredibly isolating for all of the reasons that abuse is. Uh, You 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 feel very alone. You feel uh, like nobody understands. But you also have this added layer when it comes to polyamory. Like you're not sure what is normal and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And you don't necessarily have the time and energy or the knowledge to code switch. So that's why... It was really important to have like a list of red flags for polyamorous relationships or to have a basic understanding of what what abuse is that is inclusive for polyamory. Mm. You know, these basic things that we can have a common language in our you know subculture that we can use to help people uh, get out of it or not get into abusive situations. And I mean, it, going, you know, be, let's, let's get brutally honest about um, non-monogamy now, I guess. How can how do you think non-monogamy can be used as a tool of abuse? Um, you know, how can it be, I guess, mi- you know, misappropriated as an abusive yeah. uh, tool, if you will? Are these things unique to non-monogamy that we need to be aware of when it, you know, when it comes to to tackling abuse with, within it? Yeah. So I think we need to start by just saying what abuse is, because I think like that's yeah. very yeah. important. <laughs> yeah. um, so abuse is, is a pattern of behavior with a design, intent or consequence of making someone unable to leave a relationship or situation. What I like about that definition is that, um, A, it, it doesn't necessarily just define what that situation is or that relationship is. You can actually have abuse in, in a wide variety of situations. You can have abuse from your institution, in your employment contract. You can have abuse within a family. Um, within partner abuse, obviously, we tend to think about that as being a relationship of some sort of intimate, maybe sexual in nature. But this definition of abuse is broad enough that it would cover uh, asexual or queer platonic relationships as well, which is very important because if you don't have a a usable definition that's not, you know, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to call something out. You don't have a name for it. Mm. The other things I like, the other thing I like about this is that the the design intent or consequences is very important because what it means is that uh, the intentions alone of the abuser 
it, they are not the defining point. So a lot of previous academia had talked about abuse as something that's intentional. But then obviously you end up in a situation where if you're trying to call out abuse in your community or within your relationship, the person can just turn around and be like, that's not what I meant to be doing. And that entire definition becomes completely void. So I really like this definition because it broadens that mm -hmm. with a design intent and consequence. And the third reason I like this is because it's about a pattern of behavior. So there's a difference between one harmful incident or, or one uh, difficult moment, something that actually might have actually harmed you, and a, a pattern of behavior with the design intent or consequence of making someone unable to leave the situation or relationship. So with that definition in mind, how can polyamory be used in that situation? And my answer is the same that monogamy or any other relationship structure can be. There's nothing inherent in polyamory that makes it more likely to be a tactic for abuse. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing inherent in monogamy that makes it less likely to be a tactic of abuse. Um, the important thing is that abuse can happen in both, well, in any type of relationship structure. Um, and that we're able to, to call it out and name it. And this, I think, where it's helpful to talk about a list of red flags, because then we have a, a wide variety, a smorgasbord, if you will, of options when it comes to the things that might be difficult for the individual to confront. But this clearly makes me feel this type of way. You don't have to get all of these on, a, on like a checklist for it to be abuse. Um, any of these are cause for concern. And I would probably suggest you know, we'll come on to some resources in a bit. But all of these individual red flags can be taken as, as individual moments or points. What I will say is that in polyamory, we might have different differences in uh, knowledge, differences in experience, uh, differences in uh, connectivity with, with the, the community, and other power differentials that might even be enshrined in different types of you know, hierarchical relationships, for example. Mm. And those might be more susceptible to a power differential, which, which might end up being something that makes it easier for someone to keep you in a relationship or situation you might want to leave. But that also happens in monogamy. So there's nothing, yeah. there's mm -hmm. nothing specific to polyamory. I want to be really clear on this. Polyamory mm -hmm. is not, uh, you know, more likely to be a tactic of abuse for, for an abuser than monogamy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I love that you've said that and I love that you've sort of highlighted and something that we try to sort of talk about on our show a lot as well is that, a lot of the, the things we talk about that are polyamory or non-monogamy as a whole specific can easily and sometimes should be applied to monogamous relationships as well. And um, obviously we're a show for primarily a non-monogamous listener, but there is so many learnings that you can you can take from what we're talking about and what you've just mentioned and, and talk about monogamy as well. And I just love when people say it's a human relationships thing. It's not specific to polyamory. And I think that is such an important point uh, when we're talking about these sorts of topics with non-monogamy because it's not the design, the nature of non-monogamy that's going to cause abuse, you know. And it's I just really think that's such an important distinction. Yeah, totally. And Because, I mean, I find that sometimes the default response in people who maybe are, you know, the idea of non-monogamy is a, a little bit alien to them is to assume that the worst of the person that's non-monogamous or um yeah that you, you can kind of enter an x amount of scenarios uh, to, to that to that assumption but um so i think it's important that we it's absolutely important that we talk about it as uh 
the things that maybe are a little bit more specific, the sort of tools of abuse that are more specific to non-monogamy, but also acknowledging that it's not inherently abusive like some people would assume. So yeah, I also really appreciate that mm. kind of it's a human relationships thing, not necessarily. There, yeah, there are there are aspects to it that are maybe specific to monogamy or specific to non-monogamy, but ultimately it's, it's the same. It's still uh, abuse and it's still uh, possible in any relationship dynamic. Um, with the red flags that you mentioned, do you know any of them off the top of your head that you might be able to sort of list or run mm -hmm. through? Might be useful. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, there's going to be a few of them, so buckle up. Um, <laughs> and as, as I said, if any of these are a yes, um, it will be worth reaching out to support and, and thinking more on this. Mm -hmm. But I, we will come on to maybe some resources later. But absolutely, yeah. Here we go. Uh, number one, are you afraid of them? Trust, trust that gut. I think that some forms of abuse could be emotional or mental abuse, which will make you not trust that feeling. Um, so ruminate on that. Are you afraid of them? Are you getting distant from your family and friends because this person in particular makes those relationships difficult? Isolation is also a tool of abuse, very common tool for abuse. Um, so this, this red flag is meant to earmark that one. Is the level of energy mo or motivation declining or are you beginning to feel depressed? And similarly, is your self-opinion declining so that you are always fighting to be good enough and to prove yourself? Do you find yourself constantly preoccupied with the relationship and how to fix it? And do you feel like you can't do anything right? So are those interpersonal uh, moments with, with your, I'm going to assume partner, but obviously that can be anything you, that you would like it to be. Um, but are those interpersonal moments with your partner causing you to feel like you've done something wrong, but you don't know what it is? Do you also feel like all the problems in a relationship are your fault? Do you repeatedly leave arguments feeling like you've been messed with, but you can't quite figure out why? Do you feel demeaned or humiliated? Is your digital privacy um, and your regular privacy being respected? Are you unable to conduct private conversations with your metamora partner? So invasion of privacy is a really common tool for abusers. Uh, they might even phone in other partners. This is a polyamorous specific example, but they might phone in other partners while you're trying to have a conversation. Um, similarly, are you feeling pressured into group sex to be part of, of a sexual or intimate relationship with parts of your polycule? And does that pressure uh, mean that you're accepting an open relationship when you might not want to? Do you find yourself doubting your own grip on reality? So again, coming back to mental abuse and emotional abuse, which can be uh, very, sometimes more damaging than, than other forms of abuse because it really does mess with your sense of self and your, your own understanding of what's real. Just three more. Uh, do you feel unsure of your status in the relationship or unsure when or if to expect support or harm? So it's very common in an abusive relationship that the abuser will uh, do something that's very harmful and then immediately do something that's very supportive, um, making it very difficult to decide to leave or to decide that this is actually not something. And that that expectation um, can be very difficult to, to marry. So if you're, if you're experiencing that, reach out. Are you finding that things with your partner and your metamor say don't match up? So are you saying or something, one, getting one information from your partner another information from your metamor and then not matching up. This could mean that the one or the other is trying to manipulate your understanding of the truth. Uh, to what end you might want to ask to make you unable to leave the relationship or situation, which is part of the definition of abuse. And finally, does your partner or metamor claim to be the only or best source of information about polyamory or kink? So if someone's claiming to be 
you know, the font of all knowledge, this would be a red flag. Uh, again, it instantiates a power differential that makes you more susceptible to a pattern of abuse with the design internal consequence of making you unable to leave the relationship. They're so, that's so, it's so important to have that accessible list. So mm. like, that's so brilliant. And we will link that to it in our episode notes so that everyone's got access to that. Because, um, you know, listening to that, I'm sh- you know, I think back to some relationships that I've had that were monogamous and then I could yeah. be like, yep, yeah. I've experienced that. And um, I, you know, you seek help if you need it. Um, but it's a really, really powerful, important resource. And just hearing you list them there. Yeah, that's really, really, really insightful. Really and insightful, yeah. Because there are things in there that aren't immediately obvious or, or maybe, you know, um, maybe are easily brushed off um, when mm. they shouldn't be. So, yeah, uh, if we could, um, talking about sort of how, I guess, we can protect ourselves from, from well, just just a, sort of avoiding abuse as, as uh, a safety planning. A safety almost, planning, yeah. yeah. Uh, like vetting is a is a big big word, not literally, but you know, um, <laughs> how is vetting? Uh, how is it important? How is it an important process in sort of I guess avoiding abuse? Does it always need to be done? Uh, what can we learn from, for example, the kink community when it comes to vetting and safety? Yeah. So vetting is something that's actually taken from the King and BDSM community. And I think it's uh, potentially a very important tool that we can learn within our community uh, and that many people already have. So it, it's basically the process of determining whether someone is a safe play partner or a good fit for you, which might be done through asking questions and having candid and frank conversations about kink and BDSM and then taking the time to get to know this person. Um, but it could also mean, uh, especially at a community level, uh, getting one of a better word, references from previous play partners or events that that person has gone to. Obviously, that's kink-orientated. How do we contextualize that for polyamory? And there's lots of amazing communities that have uh, grown up. Uh, for example, in the UK, there is ENM Fam. Uh, shout out to them. Um, where they are very, you know, they're grappling with this very difficult conversation of, of how how do we instantiate these, these principles into the, the community? What I see a lot is community leaders saying this is actually a personal responsibility. If you're coming to our event and you happen to find somebody you want to engage with, um, the event kind of gives you the pool of people that you can vet them from, but it's not our responsibility to do Mm -hmm. pre-vetting, which I think is a resource question. Um, The Probably Poly podcast did a a really interesting episode about this question of like safe, safer spaces, safe spaces, uh, where that, where the responsibility lands for community members. Um, and I think that that's a really important question and it's an ongoing conversation. What I will say is at a community level, the, the best possible tool that we can have to try and prevent abuse and make people better able to identify early on and leave abusers is just a common understanding of what it is and a higher level of like community understanding and awareness. Right? You're much more likely to be able to discuss these things if you're sharing a common definition if you have a common model for abuse uh, which is comprehensive and tailored which is, is what we've tried to provide from polypages because when you turn to your friends you're going it's a good thing happened to me over the holiday like I really wasn't up for doing this and then I kind of felt like I had to you're more likely to have people that you're turning to that are like oh yeah that's that's probably not 
okay like that's actually not a pink flag that's a bright red flag you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and that's only going to happen if we have higher community level literacy so whilst i think like vetting and other tools are really helpful um the best community level plan we have is is common understandings common conversations and sort of destigmatizing these conversations so that they are regularly happening um i will say something about safety planning yeah yeah because okay. i think that's like uh, a personal tool that everyone should know which is how you make a, a safety plan to leave uh, an abusive situation mm-hmm. so unfortunately um the research around polyamory uh, sorry unfortunately the research around abuse suggests that when somebody is seeking to leave a violent situation um that is actually when they're at the, the most risk right like their yeah. cycle of abuse has failed this person is actively leaving a, a situation or a relationship right and this is actually when you have probably like the the hardest um like the, the riskiest part of, of the cycle um and so creating a safety plan is a tool to, to navigate that i think it's actually taken from um mental health work where it's like you make a safety plan that you enact if you're uh you know at risk of hurting yourself or others this is very similar it's going to involve things like you're storing away uh the resources to get out uh how to physically get away from this person is the priority um, whether that is uh, separate bank accounts, whether that is uh, f- reaching out to a friend, even if, or it doesn't even have to be a friend, <laughs> to be honest with you, it could be a colleague, it could be a random person, so you have somewhere physical to go, getting your passport and your visa in the same place, mm-hmm. um, getting a proof of address or changing the proof of address if possible. Um, the goal of the safety plan is to physically remove yourself from a space and get yourself into a physically safe space. So safety plan resources are available very widely and um they can be they can be very quickly made applicable from any abuse website to helping you to leave a polyamorous polyamorous abusive relationship as well and um we'll talk about resources briefly in a second i just wanted to ask you about something you said earlier in that answer about having a common definition and destigmatizing these conversations that about abuse do you think that because of the lack of sort of resources or that the lack of research more more likely i should probably say lack of research because you've got brilliant resources but um the lack of research that polyamorous specific to polyamory that non-monogamous communities struggle to have this sort of similar definition that there might be a, a difficulty with people discussing this because they don't have the vocabulary or they don't really know where to start with it yeah i definitely feel like this this is a common issue um First of all, when people are engaging in a stigmatized or a taboo conversation, um, you have feelings of shame, guilt. Mm-hmm. You want to, you want to avoid it. You want to, you want to have a quick and easy answer, right? That's that's the that's the overwhelming thing that I personally see. People mm-hmm. have these conversations, but they they want it to be like I can just go to somebody and they can just tell me whether or not this is abuse, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've had, I've had like big creators reach out to me and be like, "Is this abuse?" And I'm like, I, I'm not in that relationship. Like, there's only so much I can tell you. And the fact that you don't have, uh, you know, we don't have enough that that is going around, like, in terms of knowledge and vocabulary, that you're feeling like I'm the only person that can do this just because we're, we're making these offerings. This is, like, symptomatic of a problem. I think it puts us at a disadvantage. It puts new people coming into 
uh, if they see this as like, for example, a lifestyle like swingers and things like mm-hmm. that, um, it puts them at a disadvantage. But it, it also means that we tend to have this, we tend to have this uh, quick fix approach to abuse within our communities, which I see where um, you you call them in, you ask them to change, but very quickly we, we go into calling them out and trying to get them out of the community. And what right. this actually means is you're just moving that abusive person into the next yeah. community, yeah. right? Right. And I still see this. You see the same problematic people popping up here and then popping up there, and they just move. Some, you know, sometimes moving countries in order to to restart, um, but not actually changing the pattern of behavior. And just this is this is the way that they know how to do polyamory, and so they will continue to to reproduce it. So. This is, I think, like a, such a difficult question because what this actually means is we have to have the really difficult conversation of like how do we, how do we care for abusers, yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's just, I mean, that that's the conversation that even mainstream abuse research hasn't been able to, to properly grapple mm. with, to be honest. Yeah. Well, it's like the the punishment versus rehabilitation argument, isn't it? But um, but in terms of you know the nominog- <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> in terms of the nonmonogamous community what obviously it's it's kind of there's, there's there's an element of responsibility to make sure everyone's feeling safe and supported what can the community do to support other nonmonogamous people who are in abusive relationships or survivors of abuse so the way i mean every community is going to be different um yep. and it's going to come down to what those community leaders have the resources to do um, if you're part of a community and you want that community to be safer, the best thing you can do is donate your time and energy and resources to making it so because the amount of effort it takes to support survivors is actually just largely unpaid and very, very large. And it, it, mm. it's, um, you know, for it to be comprehensive and effective, it needs to be, you know, the whole the whole community donating that, their energy and resource to this. So... We take a survivor-centric approach to our to our uh, abuse strategy, abuse offerings, or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, in that we will we support survivors first. Uh, we don't tackle the supporting abusers question. Um, as I said, the research just isn't there on it. So for that aside for one second, um, believing survivors is getting consent uh, to to take on their stories is very very important. I think that really at this point in the conversation, we need to call the elephant in the room what it is, which is the the probably the biggest fallout about abuse and polyamory, which is Franklin Bow, mm-hmm. uh, a very famous author or infamous author, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, who was, you know, it wasn't just one relationship, it wasn't just two relationships, 11 people came forward with uh, very similar uh, comprehensive pictures of the abuse the, the pattern of abusive behavior that had mm, yeah. had the design internal consequence of him unable to leave the relationship and this was everything from financial abuse to threats of violence um there was a meta-analysis done on some of those abuse stories so it's, it's in the academic literature as well and um you know having the the supporter community around them what was called the advocacy pods or the accountability pods was a, a real trial in this approach right so what the idea here is that when a survivor comes forward you have a, a pod of people around them with the energy and resources equipped already to support them they especially when you have multiple 
uh, people who are coming forward, multiple survivors, should also have a shared pod where those, those uh, stories and that support can be like coordinated. Um, and ideally, those people's stories can be like the mantle of those people's stories can be taken off of them to relieve them uh, and help them heal because healing should be should be the focus there. Um, now, there's a lot of stuff you could say about this this trial. Um, did it go well? Did it go badly? Um, but I think one of the things that you can't do is deny the fact that, that Franklin Vose the abused 11 people, um, which is in itself like a, a, a small comfort, I would hope, to know that that is common knowledge. Mm -hmm. So survivor-centric approach is very, very resource-heavy, but potentially incredibly helpful. And that is that is my strategy, both personally and, and professionally with Polly Pages. But every community has their own approach. Uh, you should ask the community leaders if you are engaging in a community like that. Mm. And of course, not everyone that is, is in a community. This is, I think, the other thing, right? Like polyamory is no longer like a kid. You know how like the BDSM and kink culture is like it's a very, or the swinger community. It's like it's an actual physical space people go to. Mm -hmm. Not everyone that's polyamorous falls into that space. So there yeah. might also be yeah. people that are experiencing grief and they don't actually have like an, a built-in community with a leader or a it's never one leader it's, it's usually multiple people but they are they are around nowadays yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and i mean in terms of you know learning to manage your experiences and move forward are there unique challenges for people who have experienced and survived abuse and then continuing being non-monogamous i mean obviously for some people it's an orientation as well so it's just part of who they are but yeah, it, are there any unique experiences or unique challenges that you can identify from a non-monogamous mm. perspective about healing and and learning to, to manage those experiences? Mm. So unfortunately, I have seen some cases where people have had an abusive polyamorous relationship and they've thought that was, uh, potentially they've thought that that was part of what a polyamory is mm. and they've left polyamory, right? Uh, they, this might be reinforced or compounded by telling the people around you, oh, actually, my new boyfriend and I broke up because of X, Y, and Z. And so I'm going, well, you're polyamorous. Like, what did you expect? And, and the, the person they're telling is, is reinforcing that it's polyamory, it's problem. But I also feel like there's plenty of examples where people have had a you know, hard uh, break with their abuser. So safely uh, got away and haven't left uh, polyamory because it is, as you say, part of like for me, it is part of my identity. Mm -hmm. like I'm polyamorous when I'm single. I'm polyamorous when I'm dating multiple people. I'm polyamorous when I'm dating one person. I'm still polyamorous. And when I would leave, when I was think about how a uh, any bad relationship ending right would, for for example, uh, influence me. You're probably going to take a lot of time to heal. So I think that one of the the, the best outcomes would be uh, that, that you have that time, whether or not you go back to polyamory. I think specific to polyamory, you might have a situation where uh, you are actually in a, a complex triad, right, where you have uh, multiple relationships and you guys are all relationships together. And one of those goes down, uh, you know, one of this is being abusive towards you. 
And you have then a, a very sticky, like you can't have that hard break with lots of time and distance, right? Because you're still involved with your metamors. And maybe they were culpable or maybe they were even help, helping the abuser in this situation um, without knowing it. We call this a flying monkey, which okay. makes it sound way cuter than it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. This could be a cute. friend or a partner of like an abuser who's uh, reinforcing the abuse mm. and not giving mm. space to, to understand that this is problematic. And in those situations, I, I think it's just it's just really about having like a, a further community. Like the people that you're going to to be in intimate relationships can't be your only community that are there you need to have like friends and family around you and i think this is why part of the model of abuse involves isolation because yeah. Yeah. it's yeah. much harder to abuse somebody if they have a wealth of friends and family and community around them and that's why i keep coming back to community so much because it is it is uh really really important yeah yeah absolutely i guess i mean, i'm just drawing some parallels that that I've only just sort of realized that there as well is, you know, I've, I've spoken briefly about my sort of past with uh, using or rather abusing alcohol and drugs. And I, I've kind of just realized there are so many parallels with, I mean, in a, in a way, like we say that, that we're abusing alcohol and drugs, but they're abusing us back. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you do start to feel isolated because in that scenario, the, the thing that you're addicted to is the substance and or the thing that or the thing that, that you that I guess the thing that's your abuser is the substance. And slowly but surely you kind of see friends drop out of your life and things like that. And it, it, it it's just quite an interesting I just think there's a lot to be learned from both, you know, uh, substance abuse recovery and kind of re the recovery following an abusive relationship as well. Because it's still, it's the same, I guess it's a similar mindset, a similar mindset that you might be in if you're being abused uh, in a, in you know, by a partner or in a, in, in a relationship as well. I just find that quite an interesting yeah. parallel there. I mean, if we can, I guess you mentioned earlier, you wanted to mention some resources. Yeah, what would you recommend? What 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 do you think is, or you know, has the potential to be most helpful for for people that are either in still in abusive situations or have, you know, started to separate from them, or just want to know more and yeah. want to educate yeah. themselves? Yeah. My first resource that I would suggest if you're in the USA is the network La Red. Uh, it's the network slash La Red. Um, they have a 24-hour free phone national abuse helpline. And we worked with them to specifically make the content that they have about abuse applicable to intimate partner violence that happens in multiple partner relationships, which is the language that they use. They're a queer, BIPOC and kink inclusive uh, charity that work to make their communities safer. And they also offer training for people who are mediating potentially abusive situations. Uh, so they are actually training people in the USA on about how to screen for abuse. So if you have particularly complex cases and you have a mediator pod, for example, they offer that. In the UK, I would recommend reaching out to Refuge. Again, they have a 24-hour free phone national abuse helpline. I will give both of those numbers in the show notes. So I won't just read them out here. Um, right, thank you. Uh, I think both of them also have a website that has a safety button. Uh, so for those that don't know, if you're um, 
you know, if you're on a website that uh, if you were caught on it, there might be repercussions. And then a lot of these sites have a button that you can press, which will make it into a completely different website or make it appear completely different. Um, so if your abuser was to come into the room, you won't be able to see it. Um, it's very helpful. Mm -hmm. The list of red flags we went through are on our website, polypages.org. And there's also the a model for polyamorous abuse, which I would suggest um, that community leaders or people that want to have a more in-depth understanding of what abuse can look like in polyamory should go and have a look at. Um, again, it's polypages.org. That's called a model for abuse of the Duluth wheel. So this is based on a wheel of abuse called the Duluth wheel. Uh, it goes through eight segments of um, how abuse operates, presents and impacts uh, individuals and communities. And what I've included in that when I made it, when, when we went through this work packet and I made it was the red flags and tactics of abuse that are, might be similar to dyadic or monogamous relationships, but are also expanded to non-monogamous line for tactics in non-monogamous relationships to be sort of named and visible. Um, and the final like two things would be uh, resources on vetting. You can get that from a lot of kink community websites. So for example, kink with a Y101, um, and lots of uh, lots of organizations have safety plans, um, either for mental health, for alcohol sobriety, for example, as you just mentioned, um, for depression and also for abuse. The safety plan model is meant to be like actionable steps. So you don't have to think about this. This is already planned. You've already done this. And you can get that from your, your local domestic violence uh, helpline or um, all the ones I mentioned earlier. Excellent. That's Super. so helpful. We'll um, obviously, guys, we'll link all of those uh, in the show notes as well. And we're working on a website update, so when we have a new website, we'll be able to put all those in our resources yeah. section yeah. on the website as well. Thank you so much, Claire, for your time and your really just comprehensive and thoughtful explanations of all of those incredibly complex topics. If our listeners want to find you, where can they find you? Um, so you can find Polly Pages on TikTok and Instagram at Polly Pages. That's P-O-L-Y-P-A-G-E-S. You can also um, find us, I think, on Threads uh, and Twitter or what we used to be called Twitter. All of the always the same handle, Polly Pages. Um, we also have a podcast, as I said. So have a look on Spotify or uh, wherever you get your podcast for the Polly Pages podcast. It's the backlog at the moment. Um, and you can go to our website, which also probably needs an overhaul. Uh, <laughs> working on that. Um, and I think that's it. Brilliant. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if we've missed anything, we'll we'll add it. We can add it in. We can add it in. <laughs> um, but yes, everyone. Also, you can you know find us on the internet. Subscribe, rate, review. Send us a give us a thumbs up or five stars and share it with a friend. Um, this is also a particularly helpful website to uh, website. This is a particularly helpful podcast to share with people and and raise awareness. Um, whether you're directly um, impacted by abusive situations, or you know someone who is, or you just want to learn a little bit more about it. Absolutely. You can also follow us on social media. Uh, we are at Polly underscore Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter and Threads. Yeah, we are. Super. You can also find us at our needs to be updated work in progress <laughs> website the dash poly dash podcast dot captivate dot fm and you can of course email us at podcastapoly at gmail.com there we go and a big thank you to claire yeah, for all big. your time and uh, we'll see you see we'll, we'll chat to you all next week next time <laughs> yeah
Uh, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. And thank you again, Claire. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.